Parsha's Noach. So, this is probably from the more famous stories in the Torah. Everybody knows about it. Movies about it. Toys about it. It's uh, it's just famous. Um, there's all kinds of analogies. If you look on, uh, if you Google Parsha's Noach, people talk about how this, this was... Um, the coronavirus is similar to the flood because the flood affected the whole world. And when was the last time there was a catastrophe that affected the whole world and uh, all kinds of um, comparisons to what what brought on the flood then and what's bringing on Corona now. And it's, it's a lot of talk about it. And I think there is some value there. But uh, what I try to stick to and uh, it usually works is uh, we use the old texts, and the old texts uh, seem to always uh, be very relevant now. So, we start off about 100 and um, Noah is around. He's an old man. He's, he's in his hundreds. He's in his mid-hundreds. And he obviously a very holy man because God talks to him. And uh, he tells him, I'm going to bring a flood in 120 years. Now, today we say we want to live someone, uh, want to wish someone a uh, long life. So you wish them, you want to live to 120 years. And here you have Noah, God telling Noah that, uh, you know, in 120 years, there'll be a flood. Okay. And uh, he says, why? Because people are really, uh, the, the level of society has, the moral of society has has gone very low. People are stealing. People don't respect anyone. Anyone else's property. Anyone else's family. So he says, "I'm going to flood the world in 120 years, and I want you to build an ark over the next 120 years." He gives them gives them very specific uh, dimensions, and he tells them it's going to be you, your immediate family. And I want you to make want to take basically one of every uh, uh, not one uh, two, enough of everything of animals, plants. It wasn't everyone knows that about the animals. Two of each animal, and seven of each kosher animal. But there also he did he he brought all the plants, all the fruits and vegetables because the, the land was going to be completely wiped out, fifteen deep in the ground. So. If you think about it, and all the early commentators, I'm going to focus on Nachmanides, on the Ramban. He says that if you look at the dimensions, it's pretty big, but it's about the size of a football field. And only one floor for animals, one floor for garbage, and one floor for people. There is no way, I mean, go to a zoo. Elephants themselves, their area is, more, is, uh, is bigger than a football field. Most animals, you, you know, you take any two or three uh, decent-sized animals, half a football field, a football field. So Nachmanides and, and, and many of the medieval commentaries, they say, so was this a practical joke? God says, work really hard. He gives them all these very precise dimensions just so it won't work. So... Nachmanides concludes, as many other the commentaries conclude, it, it, it obviously was a miracle. Let me say one second. If it was a miracle that all these animals and all these plants and the people and everything 
they weren't able to get rid of garbage either. Come off garbage for a whole year. Obviously, it was miraculous. So the question then is, so then why do you have to be so specific about what you're building? Build a raft and uh, or say, build the biggest raft you possibly could over 120 years. It doesn't do that. So it's very, very specific. So Nachmanides says a principle for life. And the principle for life is that this is the way the world works. The world works that essentially what, what uh, Hashem was commanding Noah, I wouldn't say it's as big as he possibly could, but essentially was as big as he, it was very, very large given that point in time where, where we don't have the, uh, the, the, the tools and inventions that we, that we have now. So he was telling Noah, you got to do the best you can. And even though you know ultimately you can't do it, you're going to need God to help. I want to see you do as much as you possibly can. And that's the way the world works all the time, certainly with coronavirus now. We know. You know, some people sometimes there's naysayers and they'll say, oh, well, you know, you can't, you can't beat a virus. Well, okay, it's true. Maybe you can't beat a virus, but you can do the best you can. And this applies to our personality, applies to life, it applies to money. And that's the lesson that Nachmanides says Hashem was telling Noah, that Hashem does not like, Hashem likes to work in his infinite wisdom. He wants the world to, as much as it can, quote-unquote, run on its own. Yes, we're going to need God, and, and, that, and, that's, and, that's, and that's, for, that's an inevitable conclusion, um, eventuality. Okay, that's point number one. Now we have the famous Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra was Nachmanides' teacher, one of his teachers. He references him all the time. And we're going to jump to later in the Parsha. Later in the Parsha, we talk about the famous tower that was built in, in Babel, in Babylonia, the Tower of Babylon. Very, not much information, but a very unique story. Essentially, what happened was, there's very few verses that describe what happened. We're talking about a significant amount of time after the flood. They're already, the population has started to increase. And most of the world was in one, one part of the world. It was basically in the Middle East. And that's where, we, where people were. And they got together and they said, we are going to, we, let's all get together and build a tower that reaches the heavens and will make for ourselves a name. Most understand the story that they actually wanted to fight God. They wanted to build a tower all the way to the heavens, through the clouds, and wage war with God. And that's the, that's the simple understanding when you read the, read the story. Many of the commentators say that. Certainly what they're going to tell you in any basic storyline. However, the Ebenezer says, we're talking about not just one foolish person. We're talking about the entire world. The world got together, and they, in unison, were, they had a plan. Can we think the entire world went mad to think that you can, remember, these people knew people. Noah was still alive, Right? We're talking about, or he certainly were, there were people alive who knew Noah. Forget if he actually was alive, but I believe he was. And 
but you're going to fight with God. You're going to build a tower and, and, and have a sword fight. Ebenezer says that's, that's, that's impossible. That cannot be what was going through so many people's minds. Doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's too irrational. So therefore he offers a very interesting, I never heard this. I don't remember ever seeing this in this until this year. He says, if you look closely in the words, it doesn't really say they're going to fight with God. It doesn't you look closely. That wasn't really, they said they're going to build a tower and then God wasn't happy with it. And, but he says, if you look very closely at the words, they said, what we want to do is we want to bring everyone together. They wanted to do is they, did, they didn't want diversity. They wanted everyone this tower was going to be the central place for everyone. They did not want people spreading out over the world. Everyone be the same. We'll have one central place. And remember, it says everyone was the same language. Everyone, we want to keep everyone exactly the same. We want to put a, a cap. We want to put a ceiling on human growth and human potential. That's essentially what was there and this has been tried throughout history many times but essentially what they were doing is they were messing they were they were fighting with god not directly but very directly because they were undermining hashem's plan for the world the whole purpose of existence is that every single sect and every single family and every single individual and every family and every community, every every micro and macro dynamic that there is, is for a person to to grow and to push their personal limits, to push their their community's limits, the universe's limits. That's the purpose of life. We're not trying to make everyone one. We're not trying to make cookie cutters. We're not trying to limit ourselves. Any limits we have are just there to, so we can actually grow. There are limits that enable growth and this was a completely against hashem's plan and when, when you look at when hashem actually built the jewish people he was built with 12 tribes it's built with there's that there's differences that it, with, with differences within tribes there's different families there's so many words in the torah endless psukim that discuss families and this family and the priests and the levites and and Israel, different parts of the land. Then you have by when Moses died, he discusses the strengths of each of the tribes. And when Jacob died, he also discusses all the strengths. And when, so this is totally, totally against what the world plan is. And that's something which uh, is really helpful to know. You know, when you see different people, you see you see people have different ways. Obviously, there are things that are that are fall out of the pale. But there's many, many great, unique, individual ways within our, um, what is within Hashem's instructions. And that's where they went wrong. And that's what the, it wasn't necessarily a punishment, because what? how does God stop this? God all of a sudden makes it, he introduces the 70 languages. We know now we always talk about that the world has 70 languages, and all other languages now is much more than 70, but all those 70 are encompassed in the, they all have their roots back to those 70. And that was God, it wasn't necessarily 
a punishment for everyone. It was that we got to, we got to redirect you, redirect the, the human race. You got it wrong. You got it. We're going to really diversify you. You need, hopefully you were going to figure that out by yourselves. You didn't figure it out. I'm just going to give you different languages and that will force you to be different. That will force you to spread out. And that's what happens. Actually, if you look, the Jewish people, part of our destiny is God spreads us out. And and God spreads us out more and more when we can't figure it out on our own. And God would rather have us kind of do our things in a, in a more happier way. And unfortunately, throughout our history, we don't get it. And then God kind of forces it. And that's what's happened over the years. And we have... Um, ultimately, what God wants always happens. Uh, he doesn't mess with our free will, but somehow he always adjusts to well, our choices, and it happens. And now we have many, many, many beautiful types of Jews, Svarnam, Ashkenazim, Hasidim, all types. Okay, moving along. So we got back to Noah. <coughs> so, one of the very hard to understand parts of the story with Noah and, and, the, and, and the flood is that it starts to rain, starts to get water from the ground, and Noah doesn't go in. Noah doesn't go in the ark. He's sitting there, he's getting wet, depending which midrash you've heard it from, which book, which teacher, and it's getting higher. And Rashi says, that Noah was a naysayer. He was mikitane ha'amana, which simply put means he had a certain, certain small aspect of him that he didn't real, quite really buy. <coughs> Sorry. He didn't quite really buy that God was going to <coughs> destroy the world. How could that be? For 120 years, he built this thing. He built the ark for 120 years. He was actually told part of the the um, the plan was that it would take him so long to build, and people would um, would ask him why. What are you doing? And he would tell them. He was supposed to tell them to to mend their ways. So how do you mean he didn't believe it? And I saw. I forgot who says it. An amazing idea have to understand the way the human species works. The way we're designed is we, in a certain sense, can never trust ourselves. Now, not in a, you know, depressing, neurotic way, but we have to always remember that we're human. And you can, as a rabbi, I certainly can tell you this, you can, and, and parents for sure, that you can preach something you can act a certain way. You can be so, so aware up here. But as we know, the longest, what's it, the longest distance in the world is between the brain and the heart. But it cannot hit home. So a person can, sometimes you can even, there's the famous story with, um, there was a, uh, you know, there's the famous 12 steps, uh, which, help a person recover from any type of addiction, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be. 
And there was once a very religious person, and the first few steps of the 12 steps are basically, do you believe in Hashem? Do you believe in a God? Do you believe that there's a God that could help you? Are you willing to let the God help you? So this religious person said, you know, I, he told the therapist, I could just skip to the fourth step because, you know, I got the gun. I'm, I'm a religious person. And this, the therapist says, um, obviously not. Right? Uh, you know, he conveniently left God out of that part of his life. So we learned from Noah, obviously on his level was much more, it probably was microscopic and he was held accountable because someone on such a great level as he on some level could have done better. But for us, we're always supposed to remember we have that human component of us and it's okay, but to be aware of it, that, uh, you know, we have, we, have, we have weak spots. And a lot of times I'll get into discussions sometimes where someone will say, you know, some of the, 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 the laws from the Torah or from the rabbis, they seem to be very uh, pessimistic about the human condition, you know. Don't pick up a pen on Shabbos because you might come to write it. Don't touch this. Don't be with that person. Don't mix that. Don't buy that. Because you made you leave mistakes. And it doesn't feel good. It doesn't have to not feel good. But, but really, that's being in touch with reality. The human condition is that we do make mistakes and we don't, and we don't get it. We make the same mistakes over and over again. And the more we're aware of that, the more we'll be comfortable with that and be able to actually accept it and uh, and grow from it. Okay. Here's the question. We kind of addressed this already, but I want to bring it out in a different way. So God tells Noah, build the ark for 120 years. Now, why did he have to tell him to build it? You know, it sounds like, you know, I couldn't tell Noah to go on a big marketing spree. Like he says, well, build it. They'll ask you, then tell them. I mean, first of all, a lot of people are shy. A lot of people are not going to ask. So wouldn't it be more effective? Take all this energy that you're putting into building and just go on a, go on a speaking tour. Go on a 120-year speaking tour. Talk to you know, how, how many people were alive back then? I don't know. Talk to everybody. Take your family, divide and conquer. Talk to everybody. And I saw that famous idea that talk is cheap. Actions talk much, much louder than words. And what people need to see, people also, because people are smart. People are very wary when they see someone just just talk. They want to see, well, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Is he does he does he take this seriously? You want to see something? So God uh, is teaching us something that we want. We want to influence someone. Yes, sometimes we got to talk, but we want to influence. We got to take action, take action to influence ourselves, and take action so other people will will will, uh, will take you seriously. Because talk is cheap. It is very cheap, especially today. You know, it used to be if someone wanted to get a word out, you had to pay for an advertisement. You had to write an article, get in touch with a publisher. Now anyone in a fraction of a second can have uh, their opinion all over the world. Fractions of a second. The talk is definitely a lot, is, is very cheap. And uh, it's, actually, it's actually interesting. 
because, you know, today it's very in for people to speak up and to say things about, you know, very, about all kinds of things. And um, sometimes they'll, you know, someone can be very opinionated and passionate and actually really be putting down a certain type of, of movement or behavior. And, but they won't actually do anything about it. I know, and sometimes I, you know, the, the other people actually agree with you, but they don't see practically what to do. I remember I was on a one of my trips, so hopefully I'll get to do one again soon in Israel. And I think um, we walked through a certain neighborhood in Israel, and it really, it was not very clean. You know, it was it was it was not a pretty sight, and it was sad. You know, this is Israel it was actually a neighborhood in Jerusalem, and and. Um, and someone was someone on the trip was really saying how horrible it was, and there's no recycling here, and this now. I just said to the person, I said, you know, look, I, I'm not against recycling. I'm pro recycling, but you know, before you go and say that this people are so horrible for not doing it, you know, there's a lot of information that you don't know. You know, maybe if you were in their in their situation, maybe it would also happen. I said, I bet you, and I pointed to a particular apartment bill. I said, you know, maybe that apartment there, maybe they have 14 kids and you have a wonderful mother who has patience with all those kids and they're beautiful, healthy children. And maybe she tries to recycle and it just, it's just she can't wrap her head around it. Or she just, so maybe she'd even tell her, yeah, in theory, I'm, I'm pro it. I said, look at you. What would you do if you had 14 kids and doing that, <laughs> you know? So it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the point isn't there, but until you take action on something, it's very hard for someone to take you seriously and really shouldn't take yourself that seriously because until you put it into action, you know, a lot of times you, you try putting something into action and you see it doesn't really work. Okay, so back, flip back to uh, our tower story. Torah says a really interesting word. There's so much we can learn from all these parshios. Usually it's from the people, but this time we're going to actually learn directly from God. Chapter 11, verse 5, says God sees what's happening. Verse says, Hashem descended to look at the city and tower which the sons of man built. God doesn't have to go anywhere. God sees from exactly where he is. In fact, he doesn't even have to look. I don't know what that means, God looks. God just knows. He knows, he sees, he doesn't have eyes, he doesn't have a brain. He just knows and is aware of everything. So why is the Torah telling that? So Rashi says, it brings down the Medrash, that it's coming to teach us that when you need to make a judgment, you need to make a decision, especially if it's going to affect someone else adversely and be something which is a significant act or, or, or action that has to take place, you got to go down. You have to descend and take a look and really get the facts straight. This is, we know the laws of Lashon Hara. There's a whole slew of things that I'm allowed to say if they're needed for someone needs to know something about a job, about a friend, about a, about a perspective, um, match. There's many, many situations when a person may need to share information 
or maybe obligated to share information, but you can't share myths. You've got to do really good work. Now, sometimes there is a point if you did really good work and things still aren't clear, okay, there may be a time and place to still say something in a certain way. But certainly to do the due diligence, here you, and God is showing us that. And we're all judges. We're all judges. We're always, we're constantly, you know, people say, don't judge me. We always judge. What you're supposed to do is judge favorably. But we all judge. It's very, you can't, it's very, to be, have no opinion about what we see is virtually impossible. Uh, we can judge favorably. But, the, but you're not a judge. A judge is, what's a good judge? A person who looks at all the evidence and all the facts. And then, then, you, then you make a decision. And that's just good advice for life, but especially when it's going to impact someone else uh, in an adverse way. Uh, we learn from God that you got to go down and really, really uh, find out what are the facts. And most of the time, they, it won't be exactly what you thought they were. Okay. Um, so, flood, floods ending. Noah wants to go out. Famous, famous thing. What does he do? He goes to the raven. He says, "Raven, can you?" Who is the male? Was the male and female? Tells the raven. I don't know how he talked to the animals, but he talked to the animal, right? And um, sends the raven out. He says, "I want you to go see where they, where there's dry land." Raven goes out. And the raven just goes back and forth and back and forth and comes back in. And Rashi shares with us the famous Medrash that the raven was thought that maybe this holiest of men who've been taking care of him and all the animals for, for such a long time wanted to have his wife. Wanted to have to have a relationship with the female raven. And therefore, the ravens was did not want to go out. It just went back and forth. And that's that's the Rashi. It'll be hard to understand Rashi. This is, the ravens understand these kind of things. Why would the raven suspect Noah? So there was once a, actually a student who was walking in the, Ever been to the Shiva of Bar Sameach in Israel? It's a beautiful campus. It's, it's really, really nice. It's a, you, can, you can walk through it. It's its own enclave. It's, it's great. And so the student was walking down the uh, beautiful uh, Jerusalem stone pathway. And uh, as, as always happens there, you kind of have students and rabbis, and rabbis and students get into conversations. And the rabbi said to the uh, new student at, at, at the uh, at the yeshiva, he's like, you, you look kind of perplexed. What's going on? He's like, well, uh, right now I'm actually studying the um, the portion of Noah, and I, I came across this Rashi. Rashi with the with the raven. He's like, this is crazy. This is insane. This is what the Torah is about. Crazy stories. Sounds like Aesop's fables. And the uh, particular rabbi said to him, he said, well, <clears throat> there is the wild world <coughs> sorry, of, of Agata, and 
not that we don't understand things on their on their face value, but <clears throat> sorry. Um, but you have to understand how to. There is a there is a method to learning these stories. And like like we just said, Hashem is trying to teach us a lesson. What's the lesson? This raven was paranoid. It was ridiculous. It made no sense. Noah didn't have a second. He didn't have time to sleep. He had round the clock, giving, 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 giving. Why in the world? He, ha- he needs to ask you to do something. So he asks you to do it. And that's it. What is behind many, many, many paranoid paranoia that we have? You know, you see two people talking on the other side of the room. You see someone didn't do this. Someone did do that. It's a, there's a certain level. A lot of it's paranoid. What's the, what's the essence of a lot of paranoia? Not all paranoia, but the essence of a lot of times where a person is paranoid. It's really a benign expression of egocentrism. If a person is always thinking like they're the center of the universe, so it's very reasonable to think that people are talking about you or responding to you or working around you. It's been said that a person until they're 20, you are completely, you make your decisions basically based on what other people think or do. When you hit 20 to 40, you still like realize that other people have opinions about you, but you build that self-confidence to kind of do what you want to do despite what other people may think or say. And once you get older and older, you kind of realize that no one's actually thinking about you or talking about you. That's why you notice with like, sometimes as people get older, they're, they're much, sometimes they're much more real. They don't care what people say. And sometimes it's because they realize that no one really does care that much. And, um, that's a that's a big lesson that Hashem is trying to, to teach us here. It's a much happier way to go, not an easy thing to do. I think it's our natural inclination, and that's part of our uh, you know um, you know self preservation. That's we have to have an ego. That's have to we have to be focused on ourselves. It's part of survival. But we learn from the irrational behavior of the raven. That uh, when we when we're nervous about something, to the size like we said before, to go down and investigate, but check it. Very likely, no one no one cares. No one's thinking about it. No one's going to notice. And uh, if they notice, they're not thinking about it five minutes later. And often, unfortunately, even when people and we all do it. When we say things not nice to people, and we do say the, the, the things, and we do notice, a lot of times we wouldn't say it if we would realize how much longer that person is now going to be thinking about it. 
you know, I noticed something funny or interesting or even wrong that someone someone did, or either it bothers me, or you have to say something, or you just think it's interesting or it's funny, and then and you say it, and then if you thought and you realized afterwards that you knew how much that other person, how much pain they may feel, or how long they're going to now sit and think about it, you never would have said it. And that's something that we can learn from here on both sides. When we're on the receiving end, to remind ourselves, don't take ourselves that seriously. People have their own issues that they're worried about. And when we're on the quote-unquote dishing end, to keep that in mind, how much reality is people, people are that way. And you, a lot of um, harm could be avoided if, if you keep that in mind. Back to the tower. So chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. So what happens? The precious few details that Hashem gives us here. So they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them in the fire. And the bricks served them as stone, and the lime, the lime served them as mortar. Who? Who cares? You have to know about the lime and the bricks and the mortar and the stone. Is this an important part of the story? There's so few details here. You got two whole verses describing this construction process. What's going on? So, so Rashi says that this actually was describing the newest invention. It was a new invention. And the new invention was bricks. There actually were no stones where they were. Uh, it's saying there weren't any stones in that area of Babylon. And it was a new thing that they were able to build with bricks. It used to be really hard. You had to use stone from quarries and schlep it around. And now there was a new invention called bricks. And that's what Rashi says. How does, how does that translate? In, how does that a key part of the story? So Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, who was the, uh, head, the rabbi of, uh, of Jerusalem about 100 years ago, well, a little more than that, and he said that it was precisely, this is what the Torah shares with us right when they say, come let us build. Talks about the bricks and the fire, and they had this whole new invention of how to make brick, of how, of how, of how to build. And precisely at that point is when they decide, come let us build the city. Says of Yosef Chaim Zunnefeld, he says, when a person accomplishes something, especially something new, and it's really on top of the game, it's cutting edge, you run the risk of, you run the risk of thinking it's all about you and that you're on top of the world and that you're all that. And that's that's what happened. That's what enabled them to get to this frame of mind of they're going to fight with God or they're going to stifle humanity, whatever explanation you're going to have. They knew best. 
And that is, uh, I mean, it goes without saying, hard today. You know, five-year-olds know more than uh, adults know sometimes. They can Google and find everything out. You don't need to learn from anyone. You don't need a, you don't need a life experience. Of course you do. But uh, it, it's a big industry hazard, big life hazard of living in the, I think it's called the information age that we're in, um, that we have all this information. We have all this knowledge. You, can, you don't even have to, you can YouTube how to fix most things in your house. Just YouTube. So that's what we learn from let us make bricks. Be careful when you have a new invention, which makes you feel really, really like you really got it. You got it all together. And you got it all together and you really are ahead of the game, it's a, it's a dangerous spot to be. Uh, you think you're um, ahead of the eight ball and really you might just be behind the eight ball. A couple more points here. So it says before the, the, uh, the flood, when the Torah is describing the state of world affairs, so it says... In, uh, chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth had become corrupt before God, and the earth had become filled with robbery. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupted, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. What, what was so horrible? What happened? Well, it's tricky what happened because there's a lot of repetitiveness here. And the first thing it says is not that there was robbery. It doesn't say there was robbery at first. It says the earth had become corrupted before God. And then it said it became filled with robbery. The lesson, which is many commentators say this, is that a lot of times a person, we may think that there's spirituality slash religion, and then there's being a good person, how I treat other people. And what the Torah is saying, you know how the world got to that despicable spot of having no respect for other people's money or who they were, and there was murder and thievery and all kinds of things, you know how that started? That didn't start there. The, this, the beginning came when their relationship with God was out of whack. The earth had become corrupt before God. And then once general morality goes, and then very quickly, it doesn't last very long. Quote, unquote, being a good person is very much linked to that ability of, of being connected to God. To that, the, the, there's a higher calling. Life has meaning, and people have value. And when you, um, you know, I saw the way I saw it put once is that let's say you, you know, back to the future, someone would be in the United States in the 1940s. Once in a while, you see these uh, old uh, movies, things, and you see like you know, people have left their doors open and kids running around freely and it's just like things were America in the 40s I wasn't there but it, you always hear these nice things 40s 50s 60s and then let's say you would go in a time capsule 60 70 years you come to me. so 
say someone lived in New York or any major American city, what would the difference that they would see? You would think, wow, well, there's big skyscrapers and there's subways and there's fancy cars and everything, and smart cars, smart everything. But that they would expect, because if you lived in the 40s, you knew that things were advancing, advancing tech, you know, in a very, very fast paced way. And then there's a certain amount that people would expect that. But with well, a much bigger shock is they walk by cars and they see every car's got, got a 10,000 locks. Every building says security on it. Every other building has this alarm. You got cars on it that say no radio, no stereo. There's police everywhere, security everywhere. You don't see kids just walking around by themselves so much in cities, certainly not. It's a different world. Everyone's got three or four locks on their house. And you ask someone, you ask, just like, what is this? Got a billion dollar industry of security, police, and alarms and everything, insurance. And you say, well, I don't know. How'd it get there? Well, you know how it gets there? It gets there when morality gets lowered. When general morality gets lowered, very soon, or before you know it, everything falls apart. And that's the lesson that we learn. Hashem is teaching us. Unfortunately, right now, it's, we don't, we, we don't, uh, we're actually seeing it. We're actually seeing the uh, many things we took for granted and many public norms. And uh, our, I was just telling them, was walking with one of my kids to Shul on Shabbos. And I think we talked about how sometimes, you know, people used to get in fresh fights on the street. I was telling a story about my grandfather and how like sometimes the non-Jews and the Jews would get in fist fights on the street and you, know, you had some tough Jews, had some tough non-Jews and I said but today it doesn't really matter if you're tough. People are crazy. Someone will just kill you. They're not going to just punch you. are not going to just push you. They'll kill you. And that comes as a low a lowering, a lowering of morality and many many um current uh, articles I've seen written recently, they talk about how this low level uh, that, that, that the world was in at the time of the, uh, of the flood, and well, I don't know, there many, many great uh, rabbis are not so sure if we're that much, uh, if we are any better than that, maybe we're even worse. And maybe, 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 maybe that's growing, I have no idea. Okay, moving on. Two more ideas, and we'll do a quick wrap-up, and we're good. So Rashi says, famous idea, you can't give a, a, a talk on this parsha without hitting on, on, on this idea. Rashi says that Noah needed God's support. And the famous Rashi, as opposed to Abraham, says he was a great man, Sadek Haya Bidorosov. He was a great man in his generation. So some people say that means... Even in his generation, it was a horrible generation, he still was great. Some say, well, he was only great because it was in his generation, relative to everybody else. So, okay, you know, there are a lot of people who come to Noah's defense and say, come on, give the guy a break. He's a tzaddik, he's a tzaddik, you know. So one explanation I saw, again, I forgot who this, who this was from, but the lesson is, that what was the difference? 
Like Noah was a great man. He talked to God. He was inside. The whole world was saved on his account. But what was it that it said that if you notice Rashi, Rashi doesn't say he wasn't a tzaddik. Rashi says he needed God's support, and Abraham did it. All need God's support, but some special support. I saw an explanation that what was the defining difference between Noah and Abraham? Abraham was an influencer. He was proactive. He was always taking his beliefs and in a positive, pleasant way, making sure that he wasn't being influenced. If anything, he's the one influencing. Noah was not an influencer. That wasn't his hallmark. It wasn't something he focused on, on being influenced. He focused on taking care of himself. But we learn from this this um, dynamic that it's in a certain sense is black and white. If, if you're not being focused on influencing, it doesn't have to be a silly like Abraham, like you sit there and you talk to everybody. I mean, but, but if you're not, if your mind, if your headspace is not, I want to be the one in the driver's seat. I want to be the one influencing. I want to be spreading good good vibes, good information, important information. If you're not, that's not your focus, you will be influenced. We're constantly being influenced today for sure. There's so much influence. And we have to be cognizant that there's this constant influence. And the only way really to, to combat that influence is to influence. And that's, we know in this world, you know, if we, if we want ourselves or our kids or anyone or our friends or family to not be adversely influenced, we have to be proactive and be just as proactive. I heard once a, 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 a rabbi was giving a talk to a bunch of rabbis like myself, and they said, you know, we have to do, so as well, you know, Judaism is falling apart and we're, and it's not, it's not, it's not popular. And they said, you know what, maybe we're just not doing as good of a job as trying to influence as they are. We have competition. We have to do as good of a job as he possibly can to influence, or we're going to be influenced. Lastly, and this is just a nice pat on the back idea. And this I saw from my palm. He was always known for his very uplifting, making everyone feel like a million dollar ideas. And the reality is it says, Sadiq Hayabidarosov. He was a great man in his generation. And you know what? According to seems to be many, many other commentaries, he wasn't as good as Avraham. He wasn't. And that's not, not something to feel bad about if you're not as good as Avraham. But he was a tzaddik. To be called a tzaddik. Torah calls him a tzaddik. You could say, well, they're generation after generation, but he is called a tzaddik. But what does that mean? The definition of a tzaddik is relative. You know, Sometimes a person can think to themselves, we live in 2020, you look back and you see, look what our grandparents did, what great, amazing, how, how, how together they had it, how patient they were, how selfless they were, how spiritual they were, whatever. Something you think about your grandparents and your great-grandparents and people of the past generation, like, wow, I'm so pathetic. But you know what? Right, Palm says, and I heard Ravaji Yosef said this when they asked Ravaji Yosef, the great Sephardic leader who passed away not so long ago. They said, how could it be that all these hundreds of years, Mashiach, the Messiah hasn't come, and we're just about there. He's going to come for us? 
we're, we pale compared to Rashi and Rambam and everybody. So Ravad Yosef said the same thing. He said that being a tzaddik, being a, a righteous, high-level person is relative. How hard is your soul working? For someone to be a proud, upstanding Jew today, to, to with all the adversity that that, that that comes with and all the distractions, it, it's just an amazing thing. And, and a person has to, what doesn't mean a person should be complacent and cap themselves and give um, bad excuses. But but a person when a, when a person feels that they're a good accomplished person, then you do more good and accomplished things. And the problem would nail home that we see from this that we, for the things that we're doing, see a big deal, I do that, everyone does that, everyone did that for years. No, no, no. To do something today that people did for hundreds of years and you're doing that, you're amazing. You're amazing and you should feel like a billion dollars for that. To, to quickly recap the points we said, we learn from the building of the Teva that you, your job to do is as much as you can do, even if the end result seems impossible, that's your job. Second, we learned that Hashem wants diversity. He wants different types of people, different ways. There's so many different ways to do things. That's the way Hashem wants. People express their own goal, their own uh, way of doing things, obviously within the pale. We talked about how you have to recognize we are human beings, and we do make the same dumb mistakes over and over again. We have tendencies. Be aware of them. Nothing to be embarrassed of and work on them. Talked about how talk is cheap. Action talks much more. Talked about that Hashem went down to look at the, at, at, at the city, at the tower. we got to really get the facts straight before we talk or certainly act on them. Talked about how being paranoid often is based on a certain amount of being egocentric and be a much happier person not thinking about that people are thinking about you. We talked about how when we feel we're in charge, we're at the cutting edge, we run the risk of thinking we're really in charge, and we're not. Talked about how the way things become really, really deteriorate down to even, quote-unquote, not being a good person, it does start with general morality and general spirituality. We talked about how if you're not proactively trying to influence, being proactive, you're going to be influenced, influence, influence happens. And lastly, you have to remember that, yes, greatness is relative, and we are doing an amazing job if we are dealing with the tests that come our way. So we should have a great Shabbos. Thank you, everyone, for coming on.